This is Coda Radio, episode 533 for August 28th, 2023. Hey friend, welcome in to Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show. Taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and the world of technology. I'm feeling weird, but our host, Mr. Dominic, is here to ground me. Hello, Mike. Hello, I've got you grounded like your cable tied with some sandbags on top, just to make sure. Yeah, just be sure you don't have anything that might attract lightning. Like a giant metal grill? I was watching the news this morning, and uh, they basically told me that Doomsday is headed for your state right now. So we're recording a day early. This, you know, just in case. <laughs> just in case. Who knows what could happen? Yeah, so it's only going to be one of two ways, right? We're going to do a show, and I'm going to have to go run around and tie things down and sandbag it up uh, either tonight or tomorrow. And nothing's going to happen. Or I'm going to be like Kevin Costner on Waterworld. So we'll see. Yeah. Ooh, I feel for you. I'm, uh, I'm grateful we could do it early, and uh, I'll be watching to see how it goes. We do have a big show, so let's get into Olympia Mike's API rant to warm us up. We like to warm up with the feedback. Mike says, listening to you guys talk about APIs and how they've changed has me all fired up. (laughs) I'm curious if you guys have noticed a really annoying trend with APIs over the last few years. I feel like they're chatty now, meaning they require several back and forth to just accomplish basic tasks. Didn't always seem this way. For instance, I maintain a number of API integrations for email services for my SaaS platform. Five years ago, when I built my first active campaign integration, let's just say I wanted to add a sales underscore lead to the email address foo at bar.com. Version one of their API had an endpoint that would make the email address and tag as an assignment just sorted out. They add the user if needed, and they add the tag if needed, and then they just associate them. However, I've just had to rewrite this integration for version three of their API, and now to do the same thing, I, one, have to call an endpoint to get the contact ID from the email, Two, call an endpoint to get all the tags, iterate through all of them, find a match, and save the ID. Then three, if the tag isn't found in two, I need to add it and get the ID. And then four, finally, I call another endpoint to associate the contact ID and the tag ID. And I'm not trying to dig on active campaign. I've noticed all APIs use these that I use these days are trending more primitive and require way more work on my part and latency with all the chatter. But I don't understand why. Seems like they're just making me beat up their API with four calls instead of one. Why not just have smarter endpoints that reduce the chatter? Well, thanks for listening to my old man yells at Cloud Rant. You know, what do you think, Mike? Why would they want to break that out into so many different calls? Uh, I mean, there's a couple reasons, right? And, it, it, you know, it's, it's probably different depending on the organization. One would be they might be super into like really clean. This function does one thing. A lot of people who tend to do like TDD... Uh, particularly like test first folks, I've noticed there's again correlations, not causation, right? But uh, tend to write APIs like this. I don't necessarily mind this. What he's uh, Olympia Mike is describing. Um, I actually kind of prefer it to the you can do a giant update call and that you have you know, and there's all this complexity that you have to kind of just know on the client about what is valid and what is not. But the, the, obviously, there's a happy medium. And, you know, I think a lot of this stuff is style, right? A lot of this stuff is like fads. I mean, certainly, um, you know, with Alice, we integrate with a lot of third-party APIs. And 
I can tell you it's like the development culture at different organizations is just super different. Like a lot of these old .NET or more kind of legacy things, it is that big old, here's an update call and you can send, you know, any or all of these 40 parameters. Um, and there's rules on, you know, if you have foo as bar, then you have to have X as Y or within some range. There's always like rules you have to understand on the client side. And I've also been dealing with uh, some newer, hipper shops, I would say, that are, you know, doing the hotness, right? They're doing like node backends or they're doing, you know, I guess closure just to, to name check West for a little bit. Hey, um, and they're, you know, I mean, this used to be super common with like the hardest core of the rails hipsters too, uh, the ones who advocated for the test first development. And I've got, you know, I've, I've, I've definitely become more moderate on this. I used to be like, those tests are kind of a waste. I find myself writing them a lot too, particularly in TypeScript, but I, I don't know. I, I guess, I mean, yeah, it, I get it. If you have like f- 20 fields on a, on a database table, you don't need an update call for each indiv- individual field. I could see a lot of cases, and I'm actually thinking of one project we had a couple of years ago where one of the challenges was they had a giant update call that had all these weird rules you, has, you have to uh, kind of just handle on the client. But the problem is every time the rules changed, you had to change the client. Oh man! <laughs> so one of the solutions we took was breaking out right, breaking out the problematic uh, fields, the fields that had the, it was basically about like how much they charged. There was like logic to it into its own controller action because we also rewrote part of it in Rails, and that controller action just took in your values, validated them, and it had a bunch of error states it could return, or would you know just handle it on the back end. Uh, and the clean update call, the original right like you know, my model slash update was just, uh, you know, updating like the things had like descriptions and, you know, they had like inventory IDs, things like that. So I don't know. I, you know, if you, things change so much and I, I mean, I remember the old soap APIs, which was just terrible, right? Since send a, you know, extra large Domino's pizza sized XML data dump up to the cloud or usually a server in some basement. Just killer on mobile. Which which is why REST became more popular, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's also a whole different world of something I don't do a lot with a graph. What is it? GraphQL? Yeah, GraphQL. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's kind of a different way of doing things too. It, it just depends. And I, I think his question was mostly about REST APIs, but these problems have been approached. Yeah, in a lot of ways, we're like developers are like the drunk guy at the bar repeating the same stories over and over again with a slightly different twist, right? He wasn't at the Mets game. He was at the Yankees game after seven beers. Oh, and it wasn't a foul ball. It was actually a pop fly, right? It's just, I don't know. It, it, well, maybe it's a sign that the developers of that organization have plenty of bandwidth and time. So they're iterating on these things, you know, board developers over there. That's what I take. Well, from it, it. it could also be like how the developers were caught. I mean, one... Uh, one thing I notice in my code, and I've been told this before, is I tend to write long method names because I spent a lot of time early on writing Objective-C and the convention in Objective-C is this method does this to this object with this Mm. parameter and this parameter and this other parameter. I find that more readable, but that's purely... like I want to slap people when I see one-letter variables. (laughs) But that's a purely stylistic, you know kind of whatever culture you were taught in thing or old man tendencies 
Well, man, tennis, or if you started in Java, like a lot of people, it's like, I have a factory for my factory, for my Ford factory, for sure. my GM factories, <laughs> factory, factory. So, you know. Well, speaking of the good old days, Will was amused by IBM's new update to their AI product. Uh, this is pretty great. He says, IBM's AI just added its second code generation feature. It was first something about generating Ansible playbooks, which could be cool. And now it has the ability to rewrite COBOL as Java, which I find hilarious. That might be one of the niches that GitHub Copilot hasn't covered. So I'll give them that. Where were they when the state of Florida needed them during COVID? Right. Oh, and COBOL developers feel their paycheck go down everywhere. I don't think so. I, I, no, I heard about no. what like the one COBOL shop was charging <laughs> the state of Florida. They're like, oh, you could not pay us. I mean, you can't run your own employment website then, but. You know, it's yeah. your choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God damn it, Cobalt. Thank you, everybody who did write in at coder.show slash contact. Uh, I want to give a plug because it's coming up really soon. Ohio Linux Fest. And it, it looks like a banger. They got some great keynotes in there, including uh, John Mad Dog Hall, who's updated it for the Red Hat stuff that's happened recently. They have a NixOS basics to DevOps in there. Introduction to Mastodon in the Fediverse. And a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean... Everything from Raspberry Pi programming to Home Assistant and Docker Unleashed and etc. It looks like if you're in the area around September, uh, I believe it is the 8th through the 9th, Ohio Linux Fest looks like one not to miss. And uh, I regret not informing the listener sooner, but it's on your radar now. We'll have a link in the show notes for more details. Also, thank you everybody who supports the show as a member at coderqa.co. It's a great way to just invest in the ongoing production to make sure we can keep doing that. As a thank you, you get an ad-free version of the show. You get the Coderly and uh, maybe even a holiday special. I don't know. We're brewing something up. We just have to, you know, assuming storms and family allow, we have something special. And then, of course, the other way to support the show directly in this ad winter is by boosting. You can get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com and boost that way. Or uh, if you don't want to switch apps, get Albi. Get Albi.com. You top that off either directly. They've got a couple options in there. I've used MoonPay. That's a weird name, but it works. Or you can use something like the Cash App if you've got that already. You just send them over into Albi. And then you go to the podcast index. We have all this linked in the show notes. And Coda Radio's entry, you can just boost right there and send a message into the show. And we'll, we'll be reading those later on in the episode. And it's a fantastic way to support each production and get your message read on the show. Let's talk about a story that I caught on the financial news this morning. It's interesting that they covered this on the financial news, but I think I'll, I know why. And they are the only ones reporting about an initiative that was launched on August 10th by U.S. officials in the uh, CISA division that are warning of potential cyber threats to U.S. infrastructure and power grid where they use open source software. I got a couple of quick clips to give you context. U.S. warning that Chinese hackers are positioning themselves to attack critical U.S. infrastructure. Eamon Javers joins us from D.C. with some exclusive reporting. Eamon. Hey there, Morgan. That's right. American officials are scrambling to make sure potential weaknesses in the software used to operate American infrastructure have not been penetrated by Chinese and Russian hostile actors. They're focusing on the threat to so-called open source software, which is developed by hobbyists and others and then put into the public domain. Software companies that make infrastructure systems 
often use large chunks of open source code in their programs. But the fear here is that hackers could be developing this code, releasing it to the public and seeding vulnerabilities intentionally here. On August 10th, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, known as CISA, asked the open source community for ideas on how to secure the code. And a government official tells CNBC that CISA plans to release a draft national strategy for open source security in the coming months. First of all, I find it really obnoxious how they characterize open source and open source developers. And I don't have a clip of this for the show, but I'll link to the full video in the show notes. At the end of that guy's segment, the, the news actress is incensed and she asked the question, how is it possible that all this open source software got into our important infrastructure? Like it's gross. How, it's they're so misinformed. It's ridiculous. Uh, but here is what the CISA website has. We have this link. They've they've launched an initiative. They want to help you secure open source software, and they're asking for your feedback. They say, quote, we can only fully realize the benefits of open source software when everyone, including the federal government, pays their part in supporting the ecosystem. Okay, I agree with that. The federal government is one of the largest users of open source software in the world, and we must do our part to help secure it. This requires wide-scale efforts to help uplift the level of security in the open-source ecosystem. So they want to spend money, obviously, and they make comparisons to how the U.S. government did a once-in-a-generation investment. In 1956, President Eisenhower signed the Federal Aid Highway Act into law, authorizing $25 billion to build 41,000 miles of highways over a decade. And they make that this would be a similar comparison, similar benefit in economic activity, but it's it's a complicated problem, especially with how bad politics is, how bad, the, how dysfunctional the U.S. government is, and the fact that open source development is a worldwide phenomenon. And there are non-neutral actors putting their hands on the scale. A cybersecurity consulting firm, which consults with the U.S. government, is just releasing new arbitrary data about what a dangerous risk financially this is to us all. Meanwhile, a new report from a cybersecurity firm highlights the potential threat. Researchers at Fortress Information Security discovered that 90% of the products used to manage America's electric uh, grid contained contributions from developers who said they were working in Russia or China. And they say Russian and Chinese open source code is three times more likely to have vulnerabilities than code produced in other regions. Now, Fortress estimates that the cost to replace all that code would be a staggering $40 billion. And it, as if you were going to replace all that code, as if commercial software doesn't also suffer from flaws and infiltration. And this whole like $40 billion number seems completely pulled out of their arse. And then they just kind of throw shade on Chinese and Russian developers without quantifying how they even got that metric that they produce worse code. I mean, like what did they, did they commit something to a GitHub repo with a, with a location that was in Russia that was a crappy commit? Like, how are we getting these numbers? It all sounds like a scam to me. Well, right. So, the, so there's a couple of things here, right? You know, I'm, I'm, let me get a devil's advocate them first, even though I think this is uh, basically a brain dead argument. Um, it is true that, you know, people can make mistakes in all software. And uh, you could certainly have, you know, Chinese or Russian or, you know, American <laughs> spooks right, intentionally writing vulnerabilities in them, right? I wouldn't be surprised, and I think we've all heard stories and whispers about this stuff, that sometimes people in the community get paid to 
you know, mess up a little bit. Uh, looks at Microsoft, right? It's just stupid, though, right? Because you would have the same vulnerabilities and proprietary solutions. And it's not like we've never heard of, you know, Chinese or Russian, let's be honest, spies infiltrating these companies. Like, I don't know, Google had like a spy in there, a couple spies in there, right? Twitter had like, what was it, a Saudi spy working on engineering so they could go and like look for dissidents. It's weird because it all sounds very like glamorous and James Bondy. I don't know if this is necessarily in good faith because, I mean, ultimately the good version of their argument, I guess, is you should look at the code you're pulling into your projects. And we've been saying that for 13, 12 years, however long it's been. And that's just been true since the 70s, right? Probably the 50s and 60s, let's be honest. I, I get vibes when the U.S. government takes unilateral actions where they pretend like, they own the internet and that right you know open source code is not of the purvy of the united states government some of the actors within the open source ecosystem for sure but these are worldwide projects and so then to slander people because they're just from a government that we don't get along with right now right like if this was the early aughts we were getting along with russia and china back then and this wouldn't have been a concern And, and software is around for this kind of time frame yeah, it, it it's. I mean, it seems like there's going to be a bunch of, uh, you know, consulting military consulting companies in particular who are going to make a lot of money, quote unquote, certifying your projects as open source safe or whatever. Well, what a boondockle, right? Because you can just go out there, take source code, do your analysis on it. You don't have to produce any of the code. You don't even have to produce the code fixes and patches. What a what a boondoggle that's going to be. And, and, and the truth is more likely to be errors and omissions, right? Not like, you know, for every million coders, there's probably like, I don't know, a couple hundred spies. And it's like people make mistakes. People are in a rush. Maybe people don't care about your use case, right? Maybe right. they don't care that you're the Air Force. They're just trying to get their thing done. So they're patching something. And in some open source projects, sometimes it's the first or second project they've ever contributed to. They're just not the most proficient yet. Well, sure. How many times have we gone in here and said, someone says, I want to get involved in the community. I want to get experience. I don't have a resume. I don't have a GitHub. Right. What do we say? Go do low-level stuff for any open source project that piques your, your fancy, right? So I'm not a big fan either of the U.S. government essentially picking winners and losers in a free software ecosystem. But also to steel man this just for a moment, the obvious question is, well, what else are we going to do? Because... Nothing else has really worked at scale, and yet we have all this open source being used by all of these titans and military installations and power grid companies, apparently, according to CNBC. So what are we going to do? Because they're not getting the money they should be getting, these developers. And uh, so if the commercial companies aren't going to kick the money back, who else is going to do it besides the United States government? Developers got to eat. I mean, the the problem, the, this this has been an evolving problem over the last decade, right? That these mission critical, it doesn't even have to be military stuff or infrastructure stuff, right? These mission critical projects, uh, the developers are in some cases not making, most cases not making adequate money versus what their inventions are being exploited at. Just take a hard look at AWS, right? I mean, I don't even have to cite this. You could just look at all the stories about it. The entire internet. Right. It's, you know, if you are the United States military (laughs) or any military, you have the money. And if there's this project that you really, really need to work, consider hiring the dude. I don't know what to say. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. That I don't have a problem with. 
pay, you know, paying the projects, sponsoring them. I mean, of course, that makes, you know, when the United States government becomes the biggest customer, I guess that's a bit concerning. But I guess it's the second order and third order effects to actually implement this successfully, not to be this guy. But how do you successfully implement secure open source software unless you have standards, licenses, and review bodies? Well, how do you successfully implement uh, standardized secure software, open or closed? Right? How, how, you, you're, the, the idea that you're going to be able to license and process your way out of any kind of security errors or any kind of bugs or omissions is just silly. Yeah, but the commercial companies get to hide it all. The open source stuff's all out there in the open, and as analysis gets more automated, it's just going to become more and more revealed. And the commercial companies rely on a lot of this open source stuff, too, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just feel like the only way this actually becomes successful is by essentially slowing down the innovation in open source. And open source has been the bastion of like the actual free marketplace of software where ideas can actually become successful without a commercial entity. But we're essentially going to replace commercial control with governmental control. And inevitably, that has to have the knock-on effect of slowing down innovation in open source. Right. So, so, so there's two different cases, right? And I, and I think that this, uh, this coverage kind of lumps them into both. There is just the reality of errors in software, which could create security problems, which I think is like, you know, how many angels can fit on a pin? It's, you're never going to be able to 100% that. I don't care what fancy certification. Yeah, I don't care how much you pay Raytheon. Right. It's just especially because unless you fundamentally change the nature of free software, you could certify something, but six minutes later, somebody's going to submit a patch or something that changes what you just certified. That certification is just going to become a biz dev branding thing too. Right? I've, I've dealt with some of these companies. It's it's like it's all they're they're sales guy driven. It would lead yeah. to enterprise versions of everything. Rel for everything. Forks, which are forks, which are forks that get fixes backported, and the longer they age, the worse the situation becomes. Right. So, so the other case that that they mention, just I think to make it sexier, is like you know spooks, right? Well, that's just a problem that exists and has existed since like Caesar, right? I mean, if you are Google and you hire a bunch of spies to work on your mapping technology, not that this happened, but. You know, that's like what the FBI is for, right? I mean, I I, I don't... And, but that is a good point. These private companies controlling so much vital infrastructure when they don't have, like, a law enforcement or counter-intel sort of thing. I, I don't know what to say. Like, I, to me, the scary case is actually the boring case. It's like the electrical grid and the water supply. Like, that's where you could do some damage, and those systems yeah. suck. Yeah, but but let's flip this on its head. Because you see what you see how CNBC framed this. They framed it as having open source in these places is bad. I would sleep better at night knowing that our infrastructure was run by open source. I would think so, right? Like if I were, oh, I need a good, I need a good Russian spy name. If I were Mikhail Vodovanovich. Von Spysky. No, one of them. Ooh, Von, I could be German too. I'm, I'm in East Germany. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's you got it, man. Nice. And I'm like intentionally putting the patches into Docker to like screw AWS over, I guess, and spy on American companies. I'm more afraid of that being open source because I know there's going to be Leonard Pottering, not to name names, or some eager beaver like that who likes press who wants to make a name for themselves. Or let's be honest, the Mike Dominic, who, if he had the opportunity, would totally blow that story up to get recognition and business. Yeah. Uh, who's going to hang me when I would rather deal with uh, 
you know, who's going to blow my cover, right? I would rather deal with dumb, proprietary, stale, old military contracting company or just have it all be closed source in the bowels of some system that nobody looks at. I think I'd be less likely to get caught. (laughs) The social reality is, is you could infiltrate Microsoft. You could put bad code into Hyper-V for 15 years. And as long as you're a good boy on your reviews and checked all the boxes, every time your review came up, you'd keep that job. Yeah. And nobody would know. And nobody would know. It's just funny how this gets spun and it's, it's obvious on its face because the opportunity here is immense. There's no, there's no Microsoft or Apple to really come to the defense because they're not going to poke at that stuff. Yeah. It's an incredible 3000 pound gorilla that's going to come in and try to solve this problem. And I imagine we'll have some benefits from it, but it, it's going to be a hell, a hell of a thing to watch. You make a fair point, though. It's exactly the reverse, right? Their position is exactly the opposite of the truth. Given, like, you know, no, no disrespect to Lenar, I'm just using him as an example, but given the tendencies and the, let's be honest, social incentives of the wider open source community, you're, you're going to get busted, right? You're going to get caught. And if you have a pattern of doing it, there's going to be somebody who blows you up and, like, your cover is blown. And, and with CISA and that cyber consultancy company and CNBC, they've framed this from the beginning that the problem is that we're using open source and open source has not only become insecure, but who knows, Russians or Chinese could have been contributing to that code. Many projects have hackers from all over the world contributing. Yeah, that's also a bit of a bit of a kind of a straw man argument they put up the Russian and Chinese. It's, it's racist, it's nationalist, and yet it's it's getting flaunted by an administration that claims to hate nationalism. Right. And if, you know, most of the, you know, large world powers have a pretty good cyber capability, right? Israel, not a huge country. They can sure crack your iPhone and they sold it to the FBI. Remember that case? Uh, the one down here in Florida? Oh, yeah, of course. Of yeah. course. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's not a Russia Chinese problem. It's everybody's doing it. I don't know. I, I, I think this story is very stupid, but tailscale.com slash coder. Go over there right now to get a free personal account for up to 100 devices. It's a great way to support the show. And you'll also get unlimited subnet routing. That's great for all kinds of things. But first, what is tailscale? It's a networking game changer. It's a zero config VPN that you can get up and running between your devices in just minutes. It builds a mesh network between all of your devices using WireGuard's noise protocol for the encryption. Machine-to-machine is protected. It creates a flat network where you could set up resources in there and access them for all your machines that have the TailScale client or for the systems that can't. That's where the subnet routing comes in. Quickly and easily create this network between your servers, your computers, your mobile devices, all of your cloud instances, your containers, whatever it might be. And then take advantage of tooling like Tailscale SSH. Quit fooling around with moving the keys around. Just use Tailscale SSH. You can establish SSH connections between your devices in your Tailscale network, authorized by your access controls, without having to manage SSH keys. There's Tailscale Send, which is like AirDrop for all your devices, so I can move files between my Linux desktop and my Pixel. And there's so many nice little extra bits with Tailscale too, like add-ons and plugins to make like VS code just work with your entire tailnet. And there's a great blog post they have, they put it up on August 18th. 
on the node while on the road with Tailscale. And it goes through some best practices, checking in and out of GitHub when you're on the road, other kind of safety and best practices for managing private information while you're working from a hotel room, and how to use Tailscale to really kind of wrap all that up. It's a great post, so check out their blog at tailscale.dev for that. But get started at tailscale.com slash coder. It's a great way to support the show. You get those 100 devices for free for a lot of you out there. It might be as many devices as you ever need. And for you enterprises, it absolutely scales to your needs and your demands without having to manage some clunky VPN product or hardware box. You know what I'm talking about. So go try it out for free for 100 devices and support the show. It's tailscale.com slash coder. Tailscale.com slash coder. Last week, we discovered Cursor AI, the brand new editor that is a fork of Visual Studio Code with AI built in. And uh, you gave it a try live on the show, and you've been using it a bit. Sounds like you got some feedback and follow-up. Yeah, I used it a little bit. Not as much as I had planned, uh, which I'll get to the reason for that. But right off the bat, the experience was pretty good. Um, it, I'd used their VS Code migration tool. It brought over all my extensions, all my settings. Um, it brought over my even the... Uh, the Darkula fancy theme that I have that you have to download and install as an extension on disk. It copied that right over. Um, it has its own command line alias, which is good. So you don't, you know, so code still works right on terminal. It is a good editor. I wasn't super blown away by it. Now we should be fair. This is not like a, a 1.0 product yet. It has a ton of potential, but I wasn't, I see where they're going, right? They're going where like chat GPT is right there. Very similar to code pilot or copilot rather, um, more leaning on copilots. What do they call it? Copilot X chat or something. Yeah. Yeah. The new one where it's like, yeah. Um, I like that you can like highlight a line of code and they, they've done a bunch of stuff for the key commands to make it like super fast to be like, you know, refactor this or whatever. And it does it pretty well. Then I started kind of looking at their privacy policy, which they do transmit everything to their servers, uh, which of course they do. They could use, a, and I'm usually not the uh, you know privacy Pam here, but they, they could use, I think, a little more clear explanation of how long do they retain that code? What do they use it for? And what guarantees, you know, do you have that your code doesn't just become another appetizer in the golden corral buffet of the llm right again i like the way it looks i like the way it works i like that you can use your own api own a open api api key that is a tough sentence to say uh so that you don't have to pay them uh their prices are fairly reasonable anyway i'm curious how it's going to integrate if at all with the open api enterprise uh level that just was announced i think yesterday or today I, th- I think it's one to look at. I, th- I just think they need to clean up that privacy policy a little bit or, or build it up a little bit, right? Make it more robust. And I do have this like kind of niggling concern that VS Code is such an 800-pound silverback right now that it's going to be a while before anybody dethrones them, especially because VS Code plus Copilot, if you are into this kind of thing, and you you know you you don't care about like sending your code up or whatever to the cloud is a really good solution as far as these things go, right? Like I, I wouldn't say the AI code generation in cursor 
is significantly better than what I was getting in the uh, VS Code or Copilot. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, to me, the AI stuff isn't, isn't a big draw. So it just kind of going to what you just said, it feels like if I wanted to use this at the degree I could see using it, I could probably just use VS Code with an extension. And I don't really need to change to a VS Code fork to get that. If it was a huge part of my workflow, I suppose. But um, that I feel like isn't even a person that exists yet. I, I don't think it is. I think this, I see, this is one of those things where we could, you know, I could be eating my hat, right? It, we, we may be too new, or this technology may be too new. This use case of AI assisted coding may just be too novel that, you know, in five years we're going to be saying, how did we ever live without this? Oh my God, what an idiot. Who wouldn't do this? But I, I don't think we're there. And I, I just question the ability, like these guys are basically built off op, open API, right? Open AI rather. So are they going to be able to be co-pilot in VS Code, which is both owned by Microsoft, who also has a significant stake and deal with open AI? That's awkward. Yeah. They have a commercial plan here, which is, uh, on a cost per pound basis, quite a bit more, especially if you're a heavy user, expensive than just using Copilot. Uh, and I know that's, you know, GitHub slash Microsoft subsidizing a lot, but that is reality. You know, you know, the edit, you know, where cursor AI would win me big is if they somehow were embedding Facebook's new Code Llama into the app locally. Yeah. And maybe like on the M series, it's, it's using the neural processors to accelerate it. I've been playing around with Llama GPT, mm. and it is a Dockerized, self-hosted ChatGPT alternative that basically using a lot of the open source Llama stuff, and they just integrated Code Llama into that, and you can run it all on your MacBook. You could actually go all the way down to Raspberry Pi. It's just painfully slow. But that, at least, isn't, you know, that's all 100% local. It's not transmitting anything to OpenAI. There's no API key required. It's all running on your box. That I find a lot more compelling. And then when you start to be able to train it against your own repositories or your own local source files, I feel like that's really where it can be super powerful. But but everybody's building, because it's quick and easy, to be honest, and it's a quick cash grab. I'm not saying that's what Cursor's doing. Maybe they really have long-term vision. But what everybody's doing is building around open AI stuff, which is fine, but it's already kind of on the interest decline. The numbers continue to look bad for ChatGPT's public usage because the novelty's worn off where it's actually good at is been identified and people are continuing to use it for that, but it's not all the things. And so I wanted to see something new that's maybe using code llama. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're going to see where this all goes. I mean, I sort of feel like everybody and their brother is slapping AI into every product and it's like, you know, your, your peanut butter and jelly dot AI. <laughs> well, Cornell university is trying to pour some cold water on that. They did a, quote, study on robustness and reliability of large language model code generation. Uh, you found this little hot potato. And the, the TLDR of the study is essentially generated code that they looked at might build, it might run, but the code samples they looked at often had API misuse that could trigger serious potential risks in products such as memory leaks, program crashes, garbage collection failures, etc., Many of the samples suffered from this problem. Things like missing boundary checking, a file reading and variable indexing, missing file I.O. closing, failure in transaction completion, and so on. And to make things worse, the developers that were using these tools often 
didn't seem to realize that the code that was being produced was essentially misusing the API on the other end. And there's not really a good feedback mechanism to tell them that. And so the study concludes that, yes, there's been remarkable progress made here, but the tools fail to substantially help the software developer in practical scenarios, is Cornell's conclusion. Yeah, so this is, you know, my confirmation bias cupcake, right? Uh, yeah, this is almost verbatim what I was talking about last week. And I'm glad it's not just me. I think we could leave it there. I think if we, there's going to be more studies like this, and then we're going to come with the same results. It is an interesting way to check these is not if they build, do they run? Sure. But what about on the other end, the things they're connecting to? How bad is that? Yeah. That's kind of a new take on it. That's a new take. I, I you know, I, I think this is, I mean, I almost didn't include it in the notes because it's kind of like new technology is new and janky. But it, but it's a fair counterpoint to the to the breathless hype. Four score and seven boosts to go. Rotten Mood comes in with 100,000 sets. Hey, He's coming in with Castomatic and just wanted to say, trying to help out with next week's goals. Ooh, ooh. Well, thank you, Rotten. Lakashen. Yeah, I think you did uh, a big contribution. Cairo Baroris comes in. You think I'm getting that one right? Oh, we were always right. We're never wrong. Oh, yeah, right. It's our show. 80,000 sats using Podverse. About four years ago, someone sent me a question about changing careers. And Chris mentioned how people outside the industry might see developers as these super clever people. When in reality, everyone's just Googling around. Hearing that gave me the motivation to move from tech support to developer role. In the end, I was better than most developers with a bachelor degree. So thanks for that. Nice. That's great, sir. That's pretty funny. Thanks for sending back some value. MCZP comes in with 50,000 sats using Castomatic. You made the call out, so here's my boost. Love the show. I want to keep it going. Dankeschön. We appreciate that. That's really nice to see. Dave Jones comes in with 25,000 sats. I would be a car mechanic or an HVAC guy. Remember we were talking about our... Mm. I feel like HVAC guy, if you're in the South, is a no-brainer. In Florida, they make good money. Yeah, Texas, yeah, too. They, yeah. 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 That's a... That's a you, you'd... It'd be rough up here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, but a car mechanic is needed everywhere. True. And I think as car prices, you know, like an entry level new car price now is like around $25,000. I'm keeping my car until it's the Flintstone mobile. Exactly. And car mechanics are in demand. So I think you're onto something there, Dave. I, if you're looking for an excuse to boost in, tell us what your alternative career path would be, because I find that fascinating. Eric Nord comes in with 25,000 sats. Just some sats for the show. Love you guys. Eric from Norway. Hey-o. The spirits of Norway. Hello, Norway. That's a, that's a deep cut on nerdiness in Orlando. Tuxum comes in, or Tux MM, you decide. He comes in with 25,000 sats from the podcast index. Here's some monthly support making the rounds from Linux Unplugged to Coder, and then next to self-hosted. Coder Radio has the best outro ever. This is the only show that I listen to where I allow the whole file to play until there's no more outro to hear. Yeah, that's a nod to Mr. Ronald Jenkins. I was going right to say, that's been the same song for mm -hmm. the whole time. It's good. You can't give it up. It's good. It is good. Can't change it. He just recently, I mean, like a few months ago, put out a new album, or not an album, but a couple of tracks. Too. I have to pick those up. I didn't know that. His, and his YouTube videos, watching him play, it's crazy. That guy. Torp comes in with a row of McDucks, 22,222 sats. Seems that looking up for old McDuck. And uh, he just says one thing. Boost! Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. 
Hal was right, comes in with 2,100 sats. What Magic the Gathering colors does Mike like to play? I'm partial to red burn and green stompy decks. I played a long time ago. I am so glad you asked. Chris, you might want to go make a pizza or something. This is going to be a while. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So I, right now, uh, I have a Pioneer deck, which is, I don't know if you played a long time ago, like standard type two got, nobody plays it after COVID. Pioneer's like, I think it's like four years of sets or something. Uh, and I'm playing a, yeah, a gruel red green, uh, I'd say it's like a stompy kind of deck. Yeah. It's like red green mid range. Uh, but I mostly play Commander because I don't know how that format took over, but it did. Uh, I play a lot of blue-red Spellslinger. I got a green-white token deck that I play quite a bit. And I just built a blue-white-black artifact deck around uh, Urza's artifact generation nonsense. So for the little guy, he plays the token deck sometimes, and I'm building him uh, since he's off of school for the next two days. Thank you, Florida. Uh, a red I think I'm what was I gonna do? I think I'm gonna do red green dragons because you know little kid likes big dragons, right? Uh but that's it. I mean I you know I, I play some especially with my my boy, I play some casual stuff. Like I think I'm gonna make like a dumb goblin deck. But yeah, like, the only thing I don't play is blue green, which I think is called Simic. I just I just am not good at it. So mm. I'll be honest with you. I like dragons too, so it's not just little kids. Chris, if I, you know what? That might be the way to get me to actually leave Florida for like a day. Let, <laughs> let me introduce you to magic. We could we could live stream it. It might almost be worth it. We'll see if you if you survive the storm. One thing at a time. One That's true. 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 <laughs> Faraday Fedora comes in with a row of ducks, some sats to keep you guys warm over the ad winter. Thank you. Appreciate it more than ever right now. Uh, user sixty six. Also sent in 2,332 sets. Disney? Nah. And Laden Packs? All right. Sent in a row of ducks. Hey, look at that. Quack, quack. Neovim Superiority. Quack. Uh (laughs) So so you have to pay your way into starting an editor of Flame War. At least he didn't add in, you know, thumbs down Emacs or something. So I'll I'll give it to him. Scott's coming in hot with a boost. 15,000 sats. Coming in hot! With the I was going to boost later because sats have been my sats have been light lately, but then I realized I had a whole stack sitting here on Stacker News. Hope this helps the show get closer to that 200,000 sat goal. Cheers. Thanks for thinking of us, Scott. I appreciated it. Thank you. Bearded Tech says, hey guys, 5,000 sats. Just wanted to pass on my first 5,000 sat boost I received via my blog. Ooh. Encoder 522, you mentioned the Golden Dragon was experimenting with boosts on his blog. I contacted him on the JB Matrix, started collaborating. After my latest post, a quick and dirty tutorial about boosting with Albi, one of their team members contacted me to show the support. Yet again, JB pushed me into expanding my knowledge base, and it's been pretty fun, too. He says, I I just had sent the same amount via PayPal. They would have actually taken half of it for fees. How about that? Yeah, he says, there will be more information about Boost for Blogs at beardedtech.org in the coming days. We were talking to this guy on uh, Weapon X, right? Weapon. Oh, yes. Yeah. (laughs) That is totally what we should call it, is Weapon, Weapon X. X. You know what? Think about it. With the letter X, we have the X Games, X Files, Weapon X, Xtreme. It's really just a cornucopia of the mid-90s, honestly. Like, you know, get me some Mountain Dew. I got this. Purple Dog came in with 5,000 sats. B-O-O-S-T! Says uh, he's replying to that jobs about outside tech. He says pretty much all the industries need tech skills to a degree now. I've worked in industrial control systems, travel, and now finance. All of these use C-sharp, mm. but the tech wasn't necessarily the entire focus of the business, just maybe a team or a department in it. 
My wife was looking at biochem jobs recently and found more wanting Python than lab skills. You know, that's a great point. My cousin's a meteorologist and she had to take like a community college course in Python because they just program up all their models to generate whatever graphs they're doing. She's not like a like a meteorologist on TV. She's like a, you know, actual meteorologist. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, the ones that actually know their stuff. <laughs> she's not a weather girl. There's no good way for me to say this, right? She, she's actually doing the science. And she's like, yeah, all, all she does, I, I hooked her up with VS Code. And I've never had someone thank me for a very obvious download link so much in my life. So there you go. Yeah. This is a fascinating conversation. Please keep it going, everybody. Ford Humor also came in with a row of ducks. So round it out now with a few more rows. B-O-O-S-T. And uh, he writes, just want to say quick thanks on the cursor.so plug. I missed the window to try Copilot for free on VS Code. But when I heard that Cursor lets you just use OpenAI's API for free, well, I jumped right in. I do a lot of PowerShell scripting for my day job, and this is so much faster in Cursor compared to what I was using with ChatGPT. It saved me so much time this morning making some fantastic automations and no subscription was required. Well, there you go. There's a positive take on it right there. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't mean mine to be negative. I should have mentioned they do have a free tier. Um, I think it's like I think it's like 200 a month or something. And I don't know how they measure that. I mean, that, I mean, that sounds like somebody who's using the tooling right now and seeing benefits. I'm, maybe he's not in the minority. Well, that's true. Like, uh, you know what? And that's an area where maybe these kind of co-generation AI tools make more sense, right? Scripting. I could see I could see that totally helping you out write some PowerShell automation scripts, yeah. Didi Smith comes in with a row of ducks. And I'm glad he wrote this. Python is coming to Excel, though not as I would have expected. It's all it's not like an alternative to supplement VBA or Power Query. While having a sort of Python environment pretty much everywhere would be nice, I feel the implementation may be may be a bit limiting. Thoughts. So I didn't dig into this. I did see this story though. I, and I think I saw the developer at Microsoft on Twitter kind of taking a victory lap. This was finally shipping. Yeah, I just, you know, when you have the Venn diagram of Pythonistas and Excel ninjas. I mean, is there a ton of overlap there? Because I feel like the Excel ninjas, at least the ones I know who are related to me and are disturbingly good at Excel, um, are all basically still writing VBA. Now they're a little older, Oh, too. yeah. Yeah. But I don't... I guess if you were coming the other way, you were a developer who just wanted to code something up for somebody in Excel, you might pick Python. Yeah, okay. So you're not used to the ecosystem. You know, the developer is, yeah, okay. Yeah, because I, I, think, I think if you're coming from the business side and you've been doing Excel for 15 years, 20 years, whatever, you probably aren't going to be like, ooh, let me learn a whole programming language because... You already know VBA. You might not know that you know VBA, which is the common case, right? You just think that's how Excel works. <laughs> right. But you do, in fact, know a good good, uh, good portion of VBA. It's true. Hmm. All right. I'm thinking about it differently now. Appreciate that. All right. The gig is our last boost before the 2000 sat cutoff this week. And he comes in also with a row of ducks using Breeze. And he says, crushing it as always. Thank you, everybody who boosted in. We really do appreciate the support because... A, the messages are a great moment for us just to kind of have improv on the show. It's nothing we plan to talk about, and it often opens up some chatter and uh, gives us an opportunity to have a one-on-one with you. It's also just fantastic because the entire system is owned top to bottom by us. The SATs are sent over an open-source peer-to-peer network. They land on my server, hosted here. There's no middleman. There's no Patreon that moves their processing to Ireland and then causes a 30% decline for their 
members for three weeks. There's none of that. It's a very specific scenario you just laid out. It just happened. Just wow. happened. Yeah, they wanted to make it, you know, and that's the problem with the middleman there. Not only do they hold all of the relationships, the user accounts, everything with the audience, but when they as a company, because things are getting tight, need to go save money. So they move their payment processing from California to Ireland. Well, it flagged a bunch of fraud on a bunch of cards. Oh, of and course. So, yeah, because why yeah. are you buying things in Europe if you're in like Texas? Yeah. yeah. All of a sudden, this thing that you bought last month for, for a year was in California. And now all of a sudden it's in Ireland. And so like they had it. And this is what they publicly disclosed was a 30 percent decline rate. I feel like somebody should have done a study before making such a drastic move. Yeah. And, you know, so you look at the boost system where like it goes through a network that's peer to peer and it lands on my node. My node is here in our office. It's like a cash register that I take out. I take the money out at the end of the business day and I can put it somewhere safe. But it's all here. It's all here. It's all managed by me. I like that a lot more. And so that's a big that's a big reason why I'm a fan of the boost. I appreciate any way you can support. Maybe it's a membership. Maybe it's spreading the word about the show. Maybe it's writing in. And we'll have links to uh, the ways to boost and all of that, as well as our contact form in the show notes. Nice. Uh, just really quickly, I want to get to the totals here because we are trying to be transparent about all this. We had 18 total boosters and 18 boosts, so one to one this week. And we had a grand total of 367,910 sats. A sonic thing! Thank you, everybody, very much. We did it. We got to our milestone. Now, the real trick is, can we sustain it? Can we reach our 200,000 sat milestone for the next episode? Please, if you're considering helping out, join in for episode 534 and see if we can get to that 200,000 sat goal. But thank you again, everybody who does support. Mr. Dominic, is there anything you want to share? Any wisdom you want to pass on to the good people before we get out of here? I do have a sci-fi update. Oh, Yes. So I have taken a break from, uh, I would say, the surprisingly decent Babylon 5. Because it's just, I feel like Babylon 5 is like, you're going out to have a vegetarian meal at an Indian restaurant. It's very healthy. Okay. Uh, unless you like pour a bunch of crap on it, right? Very healthy. But like you don't want to do that every day, right? Sure. Yeah. And I've been getting some some pretty intense lobbying uh, via my DMs, which the level of passion for the various tracks is is uh, substantial. It's, yes, it's there to give Discovery and Picard another shot. Now, Picard, I fell off. I, I watched oh. A, oh. a lot more Discovery. Uh oh. Well, I mean, Picard. Yes, See, Picard's the one I dropped off of at like episode three. Picard season three especially if you stick with the entire season is, I believe the strongest season of star Trek since all new Trek has come back better than strange new world season one. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Discovery. I mean, okay. If you want, they're going to, it's so bad. They're ending it. You know, this is its last season. They they're cutting it off at season five. Well, the whole, the whole burn thing lost me. Right. And then, is this spoilers? How old this shit is? Or I don't know anymore. I right, just, you, I mean, I'd say, I'd say if you've watched everything else, but definitely, you know, watch season two of Strange New Worlds. Definitely watch, but you got you don't really have to watch season two of Picard, but you might want to. Okay, but then I, I think I'll go with Picard then. Yeah. And then Lower Deck starts up. That's the cartoon, right? Yeah, but the kids love it. You know what I'm watching right now? I mentioned this before on the show, and I'm like into see. I'm in the second to last season right now of Twelve Monkeys. I've been enjoying that. What is Twelve? Twelve. It's 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 like a time travel series that's pretty well done. And the reason why I'm watching it. 
is because the showrunner, Terry Metalis, was the same guy who ran Picard season three. Mm. And I thought Picard season three was so good, I went to go find his other stuff. Okay, well, I'll have to check that. It's, it's a show? Yeah, 12 Monkeys, it's a show. It's a movie, too. But yeah. try not to spoil Picard season three for yourself if you haven't yet. Okay. Because it's so fantastic if you get to witness it without it being spoiled. All right, then I'm going to have to check it out. So, I, yeah, I will be beginning my Picard journey, electricity and not drowning permitting. <laughs> um, I, You know, I don't, it really did see, I, I'm, I, I, what happens in episode three of the first season of Picard? It, something lost me. Oh, yeah, they, they do. Yeah. Season one's rough. Season two's rough. Then they had a change of leadership. So season two was filmed at the same time as season three. And Terry Metalis kind of begins taking over in season two. And then. He runs the show in season three. But thankfully, the guys running it before had to go do other shows. They had to focus like on Strange New Worlds and some other show that's not Star Trek. And so they had to take their eye off the ball for Picard season three. And what we got was the best Trek we've had in 25 years. So do you feel Picard season three is more like classic TNG Trek than Strange New Worlds? I'd say it's more like what the final TNG movie should have been. Mm. So it's like a, it's like a proper send off to the TNG era. Okay. Well, Picard it is. I'm going to... Uh, now I remember which what I, what I thought was stupid. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you don't necessarily have to watch season one and two. Uh, people might write in and disagree. You might want to for completion's sake. I'm told there's Easter eggs in season two that imply what's coming up in season three if you watch closely, but I, I don't know. Yeah, it was the, uh, it was the unbelievable brother-sister Romulan pair. I know. I, yeah, that, that's what kind of... And you got to put up with more of that. And it's just, I don't know. Yeah, and like the very obviousness that that chick was a spy, and like nobody yeah. seemed to notice. Yeah, yeah. Like episode two. Okay, so you're not a Vulcan; you're a straight up spy. It's not the best writing. It's just not. She's like, yeah. Doesn't she go into like the admiral's office, and then the admiral guts out? And she like evilly looks into the camera. It's like, what? yes, come on, yes, yeah. <laughs> hint, hint. It's it's like. It's, OG Trek, right? Uh, the original series. Yeah, okay. It was the time, the era they did TV like that where you'd have yeah. a dun, dun, dun. But right. Anyway, to add to Manuko on Weapon X, uh, <laughs> We'll see if I can stomach the first season of Picard. I'm uh, at Chris LAS on Weapon X, and you can also find me in our Matrix, coder.show slash Matrix. Links to what we talked about, including that full CNBC report in video, they're at coder.show slash 533. While you're on our website, you might as well hit up our contact form and tell us what you're thinking about. Give us some feedback. And you can also grab our RSS feed, get the show whenever it releases. If you're a wild man or lady and want to join us live, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. We try to keep that updated with our live stream times. You can hang out in our chat room, help us title it, give us live feedback. It's a cool vibe. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of Coda Radio. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>